We're into the second week in our series, our short series, A Woman Who Met God, and we're working through the book of Ruth over the next few weeks. And last week, we just did an overview of what the book's all about. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at chapter one. And this is a real, it's a real nugget of a book. There's going to be some real gold in this for us. And um, so we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read from verse six to the end of uh, the chapter. I would say it's going to come up on the screen behind me, but for some of you, that will mean absolutely nothing. So I'm going to read it. It's from the NIV. This is what it says. When she heard in Moab, and that's Naomi, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. For those of you who weren't here last week, uh, both these girls, both their husbands had died, and they were the sons of Naomi. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's bitter It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept together. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I read a quote uh, this week. It said this, When you're feeling hopeless, don't give up. There will always be a glimmer of hope. Now, I would say for Christians, that's true. It's only true in God. I think sometimes there isn't a glimmer of hope. I read a story this week of, uh, uh, of a boxer. I quite like boxing. And um, there's a a boxer in the late 80s, the 90s, called Michael Watson. 
And Michael Watson was fighting for a title, and he was fighting a boxer called Chris Eubank. And in the fight, it was the, uh, uh, the 11th round, and Michael Watson was streets ahead. He was points ahead on all the scorecards. And uh, he, uh, uh, Eubank was in trouble. I think he knocked him down. And then at that moment, Eubank got up, and he just threw one punch, and he caught Michael Watson and he knocked him back, and his neck went over the back of the rope, and he collapsed on the floor, absolutely polaxed. Uh, he stopped breathing, and for eight minutes, they were unable to get oxygen to him. He was in a coma for 40 days. He was severely damaged, brain damage had a huge physical impact on him, and it took him years and years and years to regain mobility, so, such that in, I think it was 2003, he ran the London Marathon, and when he ran the London Marathon, it took him six days running two hours every day. But Michael Watson had faith in Jesus Christ, and this is what he said after his accident. My life has been transformed in a miraculous way by Jesus. I love my new life. I love my new lifestyle. A glimmer of hope. We read of Naomi that when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi prepared to return home from there. Sometimes that's all we need, you know, a glimmer of hope. Hearing a whisper that God is at work amongst his people was enough for Naomi to head home after 10 long years. Maybe you have come this morning, you feel distant from God. If so, God wants you to hear the gentle whisper of his spirit. He wants to stir a longing in you for home. In Wales, we have a word for that longing for home, it's called hiriaith. It doesn't translate very well into English, but there's just, it's a longing deep inside for home. God wants you in his presence. Last week, we talked about Naomi's broken dreams, and we saw the overarching message of the book of, Ro, uh, of Ruth was one of l- hope being lost, but God restoring hope. And Naomi here is center stage. We're just about to be introduced in the story to one of the heroines of the story, Ruth, the Moabitess, about to be properly introduced to her. And we just read that Naomi sees this glimmer of hope. She sees something. She hears something like light at the end of a long tunnel. She's not sure what it is, but she takes that step of faith to start going home. And she faced several hurdles as she did that. And I want to talk a little bit about what those hurdles are this morning because I believe God wants to speak to us. I believe God wants to help us this morning. There are challenges. These are challenges for us just as they were for Naomi. And I want to unpack them a little. And the first hurdle is this, that Naomi, the first hurdle that Naomi had to overcome was she had to overcome the walk of shame. Now, Some of you will have heard this story, but years ago, uh, we took the family to uh, America. We went to uh, Typhoon Lagoon, 
And uh, in Typhoon Lagoon, it's a water park, and uh, there are these big towers, and there are big slides, water slides off. And uh, this one day, uh, this day we were there, I took uh, uh, my two kids, Joe and Meg, uh, a lot younger, and uh, my best friend's daughter. I said, come on, let's go, go on, this, on this slide. And you have to pick a mat with you to go down the slide, the water slide. So we all carry a mat, and uh, you climb up this huge tight. It's a long way. The queues are massive, so it takes ages to get there. And so we get to the, uh, the top of this uh, tower. Uh, we get to uh, get on the water ride. The water's rushing through, and uh, Rebecca, uh, uh, my friend's daughter, she puts the mat on the water and lets go of it, and it goes shooting off down the slide. So she's stuck at the top of this thing, and um, uh, she, hasn't got, she can't get down. So she's, and uh, the guy standing behind me says, come on, you've got to do the right thing. You've got to, you know, you've got to give your daughter your mat. I'm thinking, she's not my daughter. <laughs> so in the end, I do the honorable thing, and the three of them go down, and then I have to walk back down. And as I'm walking back down, um, there are just, there's just a long queue of people. As I'm walking down, I am acutely embarrassed to be walking down. And as I'm walking down, I just remember these guys, you know, big bulging muscles, ripped fronts, you know, they're wearing shorts. And I'm walking down, sucking, holding my stomach in. And um, as I'm walking down, um, I just hear this guy say to me, walk a shame, man, walk a shame. I'm thinking, guys, it's not like that. I'm not bottling it. I haven't bottled the ride. I really haven't. Walk a shame, man, walk a shame. I'm like absolutely gutted, absolutely gutted to be, uh, to be walking down. You see, shame in our society is a huge issue. The dictionary defines shame as a painful feeling of humiliation caused by the awareness of wrong or foolish behavior. You see, shame is linked to guilt. Guilt is more of a legal term. We've done something wrong and we're guilty. Shame is the feeling we get of what will other people think. Other people know about this. I feel shame at being found out. I feel shame at what I've done. I feel shame in this situation. Sometimes it's about we're ashamed of ourselves. Sometimes we're ashamed of what we've done before God and that uh, we feel shame before God. Shame is a huge, strong emotion. Naomi had to take the long walk of shame back to Bethlehem. Everyone knew her. They all knew that she'd left 10 years previously with a family, but her comeback was coming back home impoverished. I'm sure she was imagining the questions. So what happened to your husband? Elimelech, wasn't it? So, so what happened? And she was going to have to tell them what happened. And... and where are your two boys? Are they, they stay in Moab? Well, no, actually, they, um, they died. Oh, oh, right. Okay. She was going to face, she knew she was going to have people talking about her behind her back. That's what she was thinking. They're going to be talking about, they'll be thinking, it's my fault, I should never have gone to Moab. They'll be blaming me. She would have taken that long walk back dreading seeing people. Maybe that's why she encouraged 
Ruth and Orpah not to come with her because at least then she wouldn't have to explain why she had two Moabite daughters-in-law. Maybe she thought it's going to be easier. Maybe one of the reasons was it's going to be easier for you to stay behind. You'll, you can get a husband, find a new husband at home. Don't come with me. But maybe there was something deep down. There was a, a feeling that actually this is going to make it more complicated. Maybe she wanted, she, maybe she just wanted to keep stuff hidden. You see, shame is a huge issue in today's world. You can read of, and there's been stories in recent weeks of terrible atrocities done in parts of the world. A girl marries the boy she loves. And in the society of the day, it's uh, supposed to be arranged by the parents, but she loves this boy and she marries him and she comes back and tells the parents. And there's stories of the shame of the family is so great in that society that both the boy and the girl have been killed, murdered. Shame is a huge issue in parts of the world. And it's an open issue in some cultures. For us, shame is one of those things that remains hidden. It's under the surface. I was watching this week, there's a a program called Child Geniuses. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, about kids as young as six or seven, and they're hugely intelligent. Um, They've got very high IQs, and they're trying to find who's who's the best, and they're doing these tests. And you see these kids being pushed by their parents, their parents pushing them to do really well, putting pressure on them. And these little kids doing these tests and then crumbling under the pressure of people watching them and things that they think they should be able to do easily. They can't, you see these kids afterwards, broken because of the shame they feel because they haven't met their parents' expectations. How many of us live with a deep sense of shame? Something that we've done that we bitterly regret. Maybe a bankruptcy. An inappropriate relationship in the past. A misdemeanor that hangs over our past like the sword of Damocles. Sometimes we feel shame of things that others have done and we're the innocent party. We just have to live with them. I have a a friend who's one of the leaders in a church and he talks about the, the shame he felt because his, his dad, who was also a church leader, has left his wife and run off with somebody else. And he says as he stands in front of the church, the shame that he felt in that moment, having to stand in front of them, knowing that that was going on, embarrassed by it, deeply, deeply shamed by it. What does, how, do we, how do you know what shame is? Shame is when that issue comes up, when that topic comes up, when someone mentions it, something inside of you, it's like your head goes down. You don't want to make eye contact with anyone because if you do, you think they're going to know what you have done, what's happened. They're going to know that that subject's a sore issue for you and shame causes you inside. Every time you hear it, you die a little inside. You see, I know what it's like. I can describe it to you because I lived with shame for years. I shared a room with shame for years. 
battle, battling with the, the shame of mistakes I made. Living with shame is a horrible, horrible thing. And God doesn't want you to live with it. You see, Naomi makes the walk of shame into freedom. You see, there is a place for privacy in our lives. But there is a fine line between healthy privacy and hidden shame. Sometimes we like privacy because it enables us to keep our shame well hidden. And having made the walk, of, the walk home, Naomi finds a hope that removes shame. And we need to do the same. God doesn't want you to remain hiding in Moab with your hidden shame, your secret shame. God wants to remove it. This is what the psalmist says. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. God wants you to live free of shame. How can God remove the shame that we feel? Well, the first thing is we need to acknowledge that we feel it. Acknowledge that we're living with shame. Acknowledge that we're battling with it. Acknowledge that it's a huge issue for us. The second thing is we need to believe the truth that God can set us free from shame. It's the truth that sets us free. And thirdly, we need to come to him believing that he can deal with it. You see, God dealt with our shame on the cross. When Jesus died for us, he carried our shame. This is what it says in Hebrews 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Anyone who puts their trust in him will never be put to shame. There is no shame in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. God doesn't want you to have even the hint of shame. He wants you to be free from it. That is the truth. If you're not sure, remember the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. This woman is dragged before Jesus. She's caught in the act of adultery. She's brought on her own. It's a test case. They're trying to catch Jesus out. And they bring her in front of Jesus and they're wanting him to cast judgment, to condemn her, to, uh, to com- commit her to being stoned, convict her. And they're standing around knowing that Jesus doesn't, thinking he has no wriggle room. And they bring this poor woman, her shame for all to see. Everybody knows, everybody in town knows what she has done. Everybody knows where she was a few, few hours earlier. And she carries her shame thinking this is the end. And Jesus says nothing. He just goes on the ground. He starts to write something on the ground. We don't know what he writes. 
And then he says this, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And then the religious leaders, the crowd around, one by one, slowly start to disappear. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest. And she's left standing on her own in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, does anyone condemn you? She says, no one. She said, he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus, in that moment, dealt with her shame and set her free. He, he sent her out to live a different way. Not to go back to her old shameful lifestyle, but to live a new way. Go and live a different way now. Your shame is gone. That is what Jesus wants to do for you. If you are living with shame, if you are carrying shame, God wants you to be free of it. There was a, a band in the 80s called Depeche Mode. Some of you will remember, some of you won't know who I'm talking about. They wrote a song called Shame. And one of the lines of the song says this, Soap won't wash away your shame. Soap won't wash away your shame. How true that is. There is only one thing that will wash your shame away. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross for you when he carried your shame is the only thing that washes you free, clean, washes you free. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? God wants you this morning to walk free of shame. And at the end of the meeting, we're going to break bread together. We're going to remember Jesus' body broken for us. We're going to eat bread, remembering Jesus' body. We're going to drink grape juice, remembering Jesus' bloodshed for us. And I'm going to encourage you, like Naomi, to take that walk to remember what Jesus did for you. Walk of shame. Leave your, at that moment, I believe God's going to set you free of shame. He's going to deal with your shame because it's been dealt with at the cross. And as you take bread and wine, I'm going to pray for you later that you will know freedom. You won't need to live in prison anymore. The walk of shame. The second hurdle Naomi had to overcome was this. The blame game. Listen to what Naomi says. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. We live in such a blame culture. Reminded of the, the story of a, a Sunday school group, and uh, the Sunday school teacher was telling a story, and um, she's t telling, talking about uh, the walls of Jericho. And uh, so she asked the class a question, and uh, little Johnny's at the back, and he's not listening. And she says, so, okay, who knocked the walls of Jericho down? She goes, Johnny, who knocked the walls of Jericho down? And in panic, in panic, blind panic, he says, I don't know, miss, it wasn't me. <laughs> we live in a world where we're constantly, it's not me, it's not me, I, I didn't do it, it's not my fault. I, I'm not responsible. We live in a blame culture and we're always looking to avoid blame. Naomi had to overcome the blame game. 
You see, God wants us to be honest, and Naomi was nothing but honest. She was brutally honest. God is at fault. She has God in the dock for all that's happened. Her husband has died. Her two boys have died. She's coming home penniless and impoverished, and God is in the dock. Blame has been a problem the human race from the beginning. In, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, you can read the story in Genesis chapter 3. It says, when they ate of the tree, they hid from God because they were ashamed of their nakedness. They hid from God because of their shame. And when God questions them, why are you hiding? What are you doing? Did you eat of that tree that I told you not to? And the first thing that comes out of Adam's mouth, it was, it was that woman that you gave me. It was your fault. You gave, and then it was her. She did it. But you gave it to me. And then he turns to Eve. And Eve goes, hey, it, wasn't, it was the snake. <laughs> and of course, the snake finished. We constantly, from that moment on, blame has pervaded has permeated our society. We blame, we're always looking for someone to blame. We're never looking to take responsibility for our own actions. You see, no one forced Elimelech and Naomi to go to Moab. They went of their own accord. The Bible makes no comment on why disaster strikes. Makes no comment on what had happened, what was the reason. And yet, Naomi is blaming God. She made the decision to go. It was her decision to go to Moab. It was her decision to be there. It was her decision to move away from the people of God. And yet, in the midst of Naomi blaming God, looking to finger God for her decisions, God still is at work drawing her back. The mercy and the grace of God we see evident. We're not to be those who blame. God doesn't want us to embrace this blame culture. He wants us to take responsibility for our actions. If we've, if we've made a mistake, we're to be the ones who say, I've got that wrong. We're to be the first to admit we've made mistakes. The second thing is when things happen that you don't understand, when things happen in your life and you, you're thinking, why did that happen? Don't let what you don't understand affect what you do. There are some things that we know are true, that God is faithful, loving, and kind. Don't let circumstances that you don't understand affect what you do know to be true, that God is good. There are some things we will not know the answers to this side of eternity. One day we'll stand in God's presence and it will all make sense. But until then, we need to trust God. Interestingly, none of this influences Ruth. Ruth has also lost her husband. Her experience of God is only through being part of Naomi's family. She's a Moabitess who would have worshipped the god, uh, the, the god Chemosh, which involved human sacrifices. It was a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful thing. Cruel. There's no God at all 
just demonic. And yet, despite all Naomi's moaning and blaming God and criticizing, Ruth still wants to come back with her and to throw her lot in with the people of God. What an amazing step of faith. Rather than turning back to Moab and possibly every chance she might have found a new husband, she goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi, knowing that she was going to be responsible for looking after this woman into her old age. The chances of finding a husband humanly were slim, but she'd rather do that and be with the people of God than go and be in Moab. She didn't blame God. In fact, we see a beautiful declaration of worship, her declaration that she will follow Naomi and worship her God to the very end. You see, know this, God is not at fault for the mess of the world we live in. He's not indifferent to our sorrow and sadness. So much so, he stepped into our world to sort it out once and for all. Jesus was punished for our wrongdoing. He took our blame. He bore it on the cross. God punished his son that we might go free. Are you holding things against God? Are you blaming him for things that have happened for you? Let me tell you, playing the blame game never works. It never solves anything. Use the situation you're in as an opportunity to draw near to God. You will find he that he is all that you need. If there are things you need to take responsibility for, then do it. Take responsibility. Our cry should be for God to keep us blameless. Jesus, who knew no sin, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, was made sin for us that we might have right standing before God, that we might be blameless before God, blameless and pure. Only Jesus can present us blameless. Naomi's final hurdle was this. It was in her name, actually. What's in a name? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Naomi means pleasant. She said, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. You see, names in the Bible are really important. Naomi had been called pleasant. Everything had been going well for her. She had a husband, two sons, a future look good, and suddenly it all disappears. And she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. I don't want to be called by that name. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because I've experienced the bitterness of life. And yet, God's ultimate purpose for her was in her name. God was going to turn things around in ways that she couldn't expect. Her solution is a human one. Don't call me that name anymore. I'm stepping away from all of that. I'm stepping away from what God says about me because my experience is too bad. Her solution is a human one. We live in a world where people are living with all sorts of difficulties. Their identity is wrapped up in all sorts of things. 
was reading this in the paper yesterday. This is a girl who was anorexic and uh, she ended up dying of anorexia. And this is what she said of, saying about herself. I hate me and my life. Lord, I've said it. I need help. I'm scared. I really am. I don't even have the strength to cry. I hate me and my life. Nothing is going right for me. I just wish it would. She had no hope. If you are here this morning and you are feeling hopeless, know this. If you are feeling that you're lost, you lost your way, your identity is wrapped up in your physical appearance, in performance, in your job, in your background. God wants you to know, don't put your identity in those things. Put your trust in what God says about you. God says he loves you and he's for you. He thinks you're absolutely amazing. When he speaks about you, he speaks so well of you. You've heard me say this before, but when God spoke about Job, he says, look at my servant Job. Is there anybody like him? Is there anybody like him? He speaks with such tenderness and pride and love about you. Whatever you feel about yourself, whatever you think other people are saying about you, whatever your identity is locked up in, know this, God's identity is the one that you need to hold on to. It's what God says about you. It's what God calls you. It's the name that God gives you that's more important than anything else. And throughout the Bible, we see God changes people's names. Changes people's names. Abraham has no son. And God changes, it's, it's Abraham. And God adds letters to his and calls him Abraham, which means the father of nations. He doesn't have any children, but God says you're going to be the father of nations. That's your new name. That's what you're to call yourself. That's your new identity. Trust me. And he does. Sarah's wife, Sarai, is called Sarah because she's going to be the mother of nations. God changes Jacob's name, which means grasper, twister, deceiver, and gives him a new name, Israel, prince. Because God had a destiny for him. Nothing had changed in the natural, but God had done something. God had given him a new name. And God gives each one of us a new name. We are believers in Christ. We carry Christ's name. God views us as he views his son. If you are struggling with your identity, then you need to know who you are in Jesus Christ. And the truth will set you free. You don't need to believe lies anymore. God wants you to be free. I'm going to draw to a close in a second. Maybe Tom and Jamie could come out and um, just get ready. As we, I just want to remind you of what it says right at the end of the book of Ruth. It says, it just talks about that Naomi comes home just as the barley harvest was beginning. 
She comes home just as the barley harvest was beginning. What I want you to get is this. She had left, her and her husband had left 10 years before because there was no bread. There was a famine. Bethlehem means house of bread. And she left knowing that there was no bread in the house of bread. The place where she should have known provision, where there should have been food, there was none. So she goes to Moab. And spiritually, we can be like that. We can feel that there's no bread in the house of bread. And we talked a bit about that last week, about how God wants us to realize that's not true. And he wants us to stay amongst the people of God. And we talked a bit about that last week. But as Naomi comes home, as she gets back to Bethlehem, it says she comes back just as the barley harvest was beginning. And it's a beautiful little picture of a glimmer of hope. There is hope for her future. Suddenly she comes back, she comes back walking with a walk of shame, blaming God, struggling with her identity, and she gets back to Bethlehem and she finds that there's a glimmer of hope. Suddenly, maybe God is going to do something. Maybe God is going to break through for me in a way that I couldn't have expected. And as we go through these next weeks, we'll see God does a remarkable thing for Naomi. We see Ruth coming back. And as Ruth comes back with her, Ruth is a poor Moabite girl, a widow. She's coming to be part of the people of God, but she's from Moabite stock. What hope is there for her? But the barley harvest is starting. And there's a glimmer of hope for this poor girl. And as we go through the coming weeks, we're going to see that this glimmer of hope becomes a glorious, glorious restoration of hope. And God wants to say to each one of you this morning, If you have lost hope, if you're battling with shame, if you're struggling with blaming God, if you've lost your way in God and you're not sure of who you are in him anymore, know this, that there is a glimmer of hope. And as we go into this season where we're changing our name to Hope Church in a couple of months' time, there is a wind of change. The barley harvest is just beginning. This is a new day. God is at work amongst his people. God wants to restore hope. He wants to restore hope.